Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton. To get notices of our new Bible examination programs, go to our website, whtt.org, and enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right-hand side of the website. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible examination, we're going to be starting in the seventh chapter of Hebrews, and we'll be learning more about the term Melchizedek. But we'd like to open with a word of prayer. Chuck, please. Lord, uh, thank you for your love and care for us and for your guidance especially, that we have a means to know how to follow and that we have book to go to so where we can do that. We thank you for the wonderful book of Hebrews and for the lessons it has in it. We thank you for Mark's teaching. And uh, we only pray that those who hear it will be followers. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Good evening, Mark. Good evening. All right, well, we've looked up through Hebrews chapter 6. And our writer has kind of castigated the audience because they were not really considering the true spiritual aspects of Christ's message, the gospel. And he wants to uh, tell them about this Melchizedek, but he said they weren't spiritually mature to deal with it. So after chewing them out, he says, Bell, basically we're going to talk about him anyway because you need it. And so here we are, Hebrews chapter 7. Let's read the first three verses to begin with, please. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Great. Thank you very much. Now, our author has been mentioning the 110th Psalm a couple of times already, which talk about the seed of David being made a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But now he's moving to the only other place in the Bible where Melchizedek appears, which is back in Genesis chapter 14. In that time, the time of Abraham, there were very prosperous cities down in the Jordan Rift Valley, Sodom and Gomorrah being the biggest two down there, and Genesis records for us how four kings from the area of modern-day Iran came over 
through modern-day Iraq and Jordan and came down into the lower Jordan Valley and the southern part of Palestine and then defeated a whole bunch of the city-states down there, including Sodom and Gomorrah. They carried off a lot of wealth and a large number of captives, including Abraham's nephew Lot, who uh, lived in Sodom. Abraham was spared the direct impact of the invasion, but he was very distraught to hear about his nephew and his family, who he was very close to. So he's able to arm 300 men out of his own household and sets off north in pursuit of the invaders. He apparently overtakes them somewhere near the present-day uh, city of Damascus, Syria, launches a surprise attack on their camp, scares them all off, and is thus able to recover all of the prisoners and the plunder. He then heads back southward, where he is met by the grateful king of Sodom. Oh, but, but just before that, he is greeted by another local ruler, Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, which is Shalom in the modern version of Hebrew. And this was apparently an early city on the site of present-day Jerusalem. And Melchizedek was uh, the king and the priest there. He was the priest of God Most High. So here, the only two verses that give us the account of Melchizedek are Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, which reads, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of everything. So that is the entire account. But that is more than enough for the author of this letter, Hebrews. He finds as much significance in what is not said about Melchizedek as what is said about him. Our author skips over the fact of Melchizedek bringing forth bread and wine for uh, Abraham's refreshment, although many, many Christian writers have picked up on this because of the similarity of this bread and wine to the uh, Lord's Supper or communion that Christians celebrate today. Some writers have contrasted Melchizedek's very hospitable treatment of Abraham to the treatment that the Ammonites and the Moabites, who were actually descendants of Lot, who were rescued, or Lot was rescued, his descendants later, many hundreds of years later, would not supply the nation of Israel with bread and water when they crossed through their lands east of the Jordan River. So it's, uh, it's quite the contrast there showing, and God took it this way, that Lot's descendants were being ingrates for what Abraham did for Lot, you know, back at this time. The idea of being king of Salem is, Shalom is the word for peace. Zedek, out of his name Elchizedek, means righteousness in the same dialect. So, 
we see there in verse 2 that he, he is the king of peace and also the king of righteousness. This, of course, would relate quite well to uh, Christ who gives us peace through his own righteousness. Peace with God is based upon the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, there's a lot about Melchizedek that's not stated, and our writer comments on that, not to say that Melchizedek was an angelic being or a spiritual being who actually had no mother, who was never born or who never died, but I believe the point of the story is that none of those things were recorded because the story that was recorded is God's story from Genesis all the way to the end of Revelation. And the persons, places, and events of what we call the Old Testament were intended to shadow the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And uh, as we have mentioned in numerous earlier sessions, the Protestant churches, at least, and, and probably some of the Catholic churches, were well acquainted with these connections, the idea that these stories of the Old Testament were parables of God's plan to create a perfectly cleansed people for his own possession in which he could dwell in their hearts here amongst men. And this was only abandoned when dispensationalism became popular in the evangelical churches and the mainstream churches pretty much abandoned the study of the Bible altogether. But uh, it's a great tragedy. Uh, and again, I don't know how someone who tries to follow the dispensational or Christian Zionist method of Bible interpretation, or hermeneutic is the scholarly term, can even read this letter, because this letter is a letter of typology, of explaining exactly how these persons, places, and things of the Old Testament serve to portray spiritual truths about Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we find in Melchizedek. The fact that Melchizedek's birth and his mother and his death are not recorded is not because God forgot to include it when this was recorded through Moses, but rather because God already knew the exact redemptive work of Jesus Christ, God exists outside of the dimension of time. He knew the end from the beginning, therefore. He knew exactly how, when, what, everything would be accomplished. So as this account of Melchizedek was recorded, it was recorded word for word in such a way to exactly illustrate Jesus Christ's person and his work. And our author is making that point here very strongly in verse 3, that the character of Melchizedek as he is related in the book of Genesis is made conformable to the Son of God and remains a priest forever simply because his, his successor, his death, none of those things are recorded uh, by design. And so we see here an outstanding example of an argument from silence using typology.
it is not the type that determines the antitype. In other words, but the antitype, which is Christ, which determines the type. Because everything Jesus did was known exactly to God before the universe was even created. And therefore, Melchizedek, in our written account, is made conformable to the Son of God. Is that understandable at all? Does that make any sense? It's a little tough. (laughs) Again, this is new to most of us. It was not new to the hymn writers of the early 1800s up through about the 1880s. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand, hymn rich in typology, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land, all based on typology. But again, this idea that God controlled exactly what was written in the Hebrew Scriptures so that every page would portray the work of Christ, this is a a really serious problem for diehard Christian Zionists or dispensationalists who discount all of that and say that these are exactly what they appear to be. They are just physical accounts of physical events, physical persons at physical places. And as far as Christ's work of redemption, it didn't really work out the way God thought it might. And so we're waiting for God to try again. It it is a method of Bible interpretation that is mutually exclusive to the thoughts of the author of this letter to the Hebrews. Okay, then let's move on and read verses 4 through 10, please. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all the contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Great, thank you very much. We have seen thus far in this letter that a Judean Christian is writing to a community of believers who are part of a synagogue community, and they are considering just kind of leaning back and not mentioning Jesus of Nazareth anymore to avoid the imminent persecution that is about to fall on all believers throughout the known world. And so he is persuading them in this letter not to do that by comparing the old age, which is on its way out, as we saw, it's on the brink of destruction, we saw in chapter 6. They need to place their hopes in the new age, which has dawned and will be fully culminated when all of the physical elements of the old are swept away, as we know would happen just within a few years of the writing of this letter. And so... In this list of comparisons now, he's comparing 
the priesthood of Melchizedek to Levitical priesthood, which was integral to the law of Moses and to the entire national identity of Israel, which is represented at this time by the remnant of Judea, which is one of the original 12 or 13 tribes that existed there. They've all been virtually wiped out except for Levi, Judah, and Benjamin, and Judah outnumbers the others, so all the remaining nation of Israel are known as Judeans. That's their nationality at this time. And the Levitical priesthood is integral to their identity as particularly as God's chosen people. So he's striking at the heart of all of their traditional beliefs. I mean, it's like somebody taking on Christmas and Santa Claus in America today. But that's exactly what he's doing here. He's taking on the Levitical priesthood that is part and parcel of the law of Moses. So he's going to do this by demonstrating how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And, in fact, the early Christian writings following this letter made such a big case out of Melchizedek being superior to Abraham that the Jewish rabbis of succeeding centuries have completely downgraded Melchizedek from a great and fabulous character into a low and discredited figure whose priestly authority passed to Abraham in Genesis 14. They, they basically have rewritten the scriptures to discredit Melchizedek since Christians have made so much of Melchizedek uh, since this letter that we're studying was written. And even today, if you dare to discredit Abraham in front of a dispensationalist or Christian Zionist, they will get extremely offended. Even if you don't think you've discredited Abraham, even if you just say that you don't support the Likud government of Israel unconditionally, they get offended because you have just slandered Abraham. So this is a very sensitive subject, and we see this murky idea of Judeo-Christianity, where the uh, dispensationalists have really merged themselves in with modern-day rabbinic Judaism into some kind of Abraham worship almost. But our writer, who obviously has great respect for Abraham, is demonstrating in these verses how that Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils to this man Melchizedek. And obviously he wouldn't do that unless Melchizedek was superior to him. And Melchizedek gave his blessing to Abraham. And as there in verse 7, no one would claim that it is the inferior who is blessed by the superior. So, again, this is offensive to dispensationalists and to uh, modern Jews, but it's still in all the New Testaments printed. <laughs> he goes on to show that the descendants of Abraham paid tithes, or roughly a tenth of their 
net income to the Levitical priests and actually even to the entire tribe of Levi, although by the time this letter was written, that had probably passed by the wayside. The priests, though, were still collecting. They had made themselves into the wealthiest class in the nation of Judea there in the first century. So some descendants of Abraham paid tithes to other descendants of Abraham, but Abraham himself paid tithes to Melchizedek. And he, he goes on to say, one might almost say that by the agency of Abraham, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek since he was still in his forefather's body when Melchizedek came out to meet him. <laughs> uh, so, uh, again, it makes good sense to most of us, but it is offensive to those parties that I mentioned earlier. Well, it says here, Mark, that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Does that mean what he took, or, or was that his whole worth, or what was what does that spoils mean? No, in this uh, in this particular context, this is the booty that the four kings, Elamite kings, who had raided down in the Jordan Valley, had plundered from all of the cities that they conquered, okay. and so it was that was the booty or plunder, and. Abraham gave a tenth of that to Melchizedek. Because of these ties, then, it's demonstrating that the priesthood of Melchizedek was higher than the priests who were descended from Levi. It also mentions that Melchizedek does not belong to their genealogy. He is not a descendant of Levi. In verse 8, the idea that mortal human beings are paid ties it's kind of giving us the idea that the Levitical priests would die and pass it on to someone else over and over again, but Melchizedek did not. And we already discussed that was not recorded. But in this case, it's used to demonstrate that Melchizedek never lost his priestly office by death, and yet we know that after Levitical priest gave up his office as his mortal life ended. So it's another way that Melchizedek compares to Christ, whose life is eternal, and he never loses his priesthood through death. All right, any thoughts or comments are down through verse 10. Uh, Mark, do you then believe that there really was a physical Melchizedek, or is this a sort of a yarn that was made to point out the idea of the greater priesthood and the typology, in other words, is the story invented to create the typology then, or was there actually a Melchizedek? The story was created to demonstrate this lesson, but God is so powerful that to create the story, he also created everything that is in the story, including Melchizedek. I absolutely believe that he was a real person, who lived at the same time that Abraham, who was a real person, lived. But his city-state, his name, everything, God controls that from before the foundation of the earth. So, okay, so what was that verse in, in Genesis that you referred back to, uh, the Melchizedek story? It's uh, chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. Okay, thanks. All right. Well, we we could break here between verses 10 and 11 if you wished. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.